We're going to continue this morning in John chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you can open there. There should be an outline in your bulletin that you can follow. There are printed messages at both exits where you can um, pick those up either now or later and follow with the text of the message. And then there are um, printed messages And most of the audio messages are on the church website as well. John 21, this is after Jesus is risen. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, that's a Greek word that means twin, And Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. And so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And this is now the third time that Jesus was manifest to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. My desire for this church is that every single person who comes would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord And also that each of you would grow in in the character qualities and the skills that would make you effective as you serve the Lord. This church is only going to be healthy, not to the extent that I do things or other pastors do things, but to the extent that every member of the body is engaged in ministry for the Lord. I'm thinking of the passage in Ephesians 4 where Paul says that God has given to the church, among other gifts, pastors and teachers, not to do 
the ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that they might do that work and the body would build itself up in love. And so the pastors are the ones who do the equipping, but the saints are the ones that do the ministry. And that means that if you've met Christ as Savior and Lord, guess what? You're in the ministry. You have a ministry that God has entrusted to you to fulfill. I have not yet found a gift in the New Testament, a spiritual gift called the gift of bench warmer. Uh, every member is to be out on the field playing, engaged in ministry. And that means the body's only going to fulfill its, its purpose when every part figures that out and engages. I'm getting older, and as I've gotten older, I've compared my body to an old car. If you've ever driven an old car, and I've had my share of them, you know, you get in and you go to push the window down and the window thing breaks. And you go, oh, man. And then you go to adjust the seat and the handle breaks off in your hand. And you're thinking, ay, 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 this car is falling apart. And it's kind of how I feel my body is as I've gotten older. I can still function. I'm still alive. It'll get me down the road. But... It isn't quite like it used to be, you know. There's just parts that aren't working. And the point is that when certain parts of the body of Christ don't work properly, the body is hindered. It's not doing what the Lord designed it to do because every part isn't working. Now, I know I'm going to step on toes this morning, but if it's any consolation, My toes got stepped on, too, in preparing for this, and I'm trying to apply it myself. But I'm concerned that there are parts of this body that aren't working. Parts of this body that just aren't doing what they should do in serving the Lord. Now, they may be members of this church, and I would encourage all of you to become members of this church. But they aren't doing anything to help the body grow. They... They usually attend services, and then they go home, and we see them again the next Sunday, maybe. Um, They hear about opportunities to serve, and I notice there's a flyer in your bulletin this week, a yellow flyer, get plugged in with opportunities to serve, and they say thanks and toss it in the trash and don't pray about how they can be involved. And so they're kind of like my body. It's functioning But there's these broken parts, and I'm praying the Lord would use this message to get those parts working again. Um, There are parts of the body that are serving in ministries of helps. And please understand, I am not in any way diminishing the importance of serving in ministries of helps. You know what I mean. Um, Ministries that without them, this body wouldn't function one more week. Uh, we need ushers to help. We need people in the social area to help. We need sound and, and uh, video people to help. We need people to help keep the facilities in shape. Those are all vital ministries to the church. And if they aren't done, we'll notice it real quick, and the church isn't going to work real well. So I'm not diminishing them, but what I'm saying is this. Beyond those ministries, even those engaged in ministries of helps should be engaged in spiritual ministries to others. 
ministries that impact others spiritually. Paul admonishes us in Romans 15, 14, for example, to admonish one another. That's a spiritual ministry. Or in Galatians 6, to bear one another's burdens. Again, a spiritual ministry. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, Paul tells Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so the command to minister spiritually is given to everyone. Uh, The Great Commission is that we, the church, would go and make disciples. That involves helping them come to know Christ, helping people grow in Christ. And so by spiritual ministry, what I mean is, if you have received something from Christ, salvation or other blessings, then share it with others. It may be the gospel. You meet somebody who needs to know the Lord. It may be that it's you've walked with the Lord for 10 years and you meet a new Christian at church. And uh, you realize, wow, this person is brand new and I've been given a lot and I can side up with them, have them over, go out for coffee, whatever, and, and share with them and help them get grounded in the faith and begin to grow. Uh, it may be that the Lord has helped you overcome some temptation And here's a younger brother, and he's struggling with the same temptation. And so you can help him. It may be that you've worked through some problems in your marriage. And if you've been married very long, you know that every marriage has problems, right? Uh, There's no perfect marriage that's just ready-made. We all have to work at it. So if the Lord's helped you, and you see a young married couple at church, you can assume they've got some struggles. Invite them over and have spiritual ministry in their lives as you share with them how Christ has helped your marriage. And and the point I'm making is, the Lord didn't save you to be an isolated Christian where you walk in, walk out, and you don't relate to others, but rather a Christian in relationship with the body so that you can help others grow in Him. And it's a mutual thing Uh, in Romans One, Paul says, I really wanted to come to be with you Romans so I could impart something spiritual to you. And then he catches himself and he says, that is that you too could minister to me. It's it's a mutual deal. It's a both way thing. Now, I'm going to ask a convicting question. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? Are you having a spiritual impact in somebody's life? Someone else's life. If you're thinking, oh boy, if he only knew, I'm too busy. Seriously? Too busy to do why the Lord saved you? (laughs) I'm going to step on more toes. He didn't save you so you could watch a lot of TV. Okay? Uh, Nothing wrong with, I, I have a TV. I watch it occasionally. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying you should throw yours in the trash. I'm saying, don't watch hours of TV. Nothing wrong with computers or playing a computer game for a little downtime, okay. But don't give your life to that. You know, nobody's going to get to the judgment and say, boy, I sure watched some great TV shows, Lord. 
You know, that's just not why he saved you. He saved you to be his channel of blessing to others. And so you got to rearrange your priorities. And, of course, you have to have the priority of spending time with the Lord yourself because you can't impart to others something that you're not experiencing. But if you're walking with Christ, then uniquely you have something to give to other members of this body and vice versa as we minister one to another. Now, by this point, maybe if you listened as I read the text, you're thinking, what in the world does all this have to do with a bunch of guys going fishing? And uh, if you're thinking that, that's what I want to explain. The theme of John 21 is service for Christ. John 21 coincidentally follows John 20. And in John 20, there is the story of the disciples coming to their full faith in the risen Lord as Thomas sees Jesus risen. He sees the wounds in, in Jesus' hands and side. And he says, my Lord and my God. And then the question is, all right, what do you do with that faith? And the answer is, you serve Christ. Uh, Merrill Tenney, one of the commentators on John, says, the purpose of the epilogue, John 21 is called the epilogue, is to show how the belief which the disciples had achieved should be applied. And so it shows that service and dependence on the risen Christ is always fruitful. They caught all these fish and the nets were not torn. And in addition to that, you'll always have his presence and his support. The story is seven of the disciples were up in Galilee. I believe they were there because Jesus told some of the early witnesses to his resurrection, tell the disciples to go to Galilee and I'll meet them there. I don't know where the other four were. Seven of them are there. In fact, um, John doesn't even mention two of them by name. He just says two others. But they're there. And Peter decides, let's go fishing. Uh, There is a smorgasbord of uh, commentators' opinions. Some say they were sinning to go fishing. Others say, no, they were right to go fishing because they were supporting themselves, working for a living. I'm probably in the middle with some of the commentators. Dr. Tenney, for example, says they weren't sinning, but they were exposing themselves to danger. He writes, they might forget the life of which Jesus had spoken, and they needed to be recalled to it. Uh, Leon Morris, another commentator, says, the general impression left is that of men without a purpose. Or, Dr. Carson writes, the fishing, this fishing expedition and the dialogue that ensues do not read like the lives of men on a spirit-empowered mission. And so this incident would have reminded them of that early on incident, the miraculous catch of fish. And you'll remember on that occasion, Jesus called them to be fishers of men. And so the story calls them back to serve the Lord. And then it's followed, as we'll see in the next study, by Jesus restoring Peter to ministry. And so the theme is that our faith in the risen Lord should lead us to effective service for him. John introduces the incident in verse 1 by saying, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or Galilee, and he manifested himself in this way. 
You notice that a word is repeated twice, manifested, manifested. And then John picks that same word up down in verse 14 again. And so this is a manifestation of the risen Lord to his disciples. It's a manifestation, however, with a purpose. He shows himself to the disciples to call them back to the purpose for which he saved them and us as well. And that is, he calls us to himself that we would be fishers of men and also that we would minister one to another. Uh, We'll see that in Peter's restoration in verses 15 to 17. And so the point is, the Lord wants all of us to be serving in spiritual ministries where his life flows through us one to another for the building up of the body of Christ and for the spread of the gospel uh, throughout the world. Five qualifications this story reveals on how we can serve Christ effectively. And the first one is this. To serve Christ effectively, you must have trusted in him as your risen Savior and Lord. Chapter 21, as I said, follows chapter 20. And in chapter 20, Thomas and the other disciples break through the fog of doubt and unbelief and confusion and affirm that Jesus is the risen Lord and God. And I say, well, boy, that point is pretty basic. It is, but I include it for this reason. Invariably, in any local church in America, there are people who attend the church They may be members of the church. They may serve in the church, but they've never been born again. Uh, They're engaged in working. Maybe they teach Sunday school. Maybe they help out in various ways. But when you peel it all away, they have never come to the cross as a sinner and trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, they're good people, but that's the problem. Good people never need a Savior. See, if you're swimming laps at the pool and you're doing just fine, the lifeguard doesn't jump in and save you. You Yeah, they're doing fine on their own. The only time he saves you is when you're drowning. And the Bible says we're all worse than drowning. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. We've all rebelled against a holy God. The Bible declares in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, that no one does good. Paul sums up that chapter saying in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And to be saved, you've got to realize I'm drowning. I'm, I'm worse. I'm dead. I've sinned. I've rebelled against God. And then Romans goes on and gives the great news in Romans 6.23, and that is that the wages of sin is death, but, what a great but, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you come to Christ as a guilty sinner and you trust in his death on the cross as sufficient for your sins, you'll have new life in Christ. And it's only those who have received that new life who can truly, uh, rightly serve him. 
Forgiven sinners are the only ones who can serve him well. Good people can't because good people invariably are Pharisees. And the Pharisees aren't good servants of Christ. But those who have received mercy know where the source of mercy is and they can help dispense it to others. Someone has said, you know, we're all beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. And that's at the foot of the cross. Now, maybe you've trusted in Christ, and yet you're saying, well, (laughs) yeah, I've trusted Christ, but I sure feel inadequate to serve him. And if that's how you feel, then this next point is for you. And that is to serve Christ effectively. You have to realize your own insufficiency and at the same time realize Christ's all-sufficiency. These disciples were experienced fishermen, But we read there, beginning at the end of verse 3, That night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. I might be reading into it, but that sounds like frustration to me. That one word answer. Uh, They didn't know who this guy on the beach was yet. And he says, you don't have any fish, do you? That's not a question you ask fishermen. And uh, they just say, no. (laughs) End of answer. Now, whenever Jesus in the Bible asks a question, you have to understand he is not fishing for information. He understood He knew that they did not have any fish. Why did he ask the question? Because he wanted them to realize their own lack, their own insufficiency. He wanted them to acknowledge it. Uh, One commentator, Andreas Kostenberger, makes an interesting observation. He says, remarkably, the disciples never catch a fish in any of the Gospels without Jesus' help. You ever thought of that? Never once do they catch a fish, and they're fishermen, by the way, and they never catch a fish without Jesus' help. And so Jesus wants to remind the disciples by his question here from the shore, you don't have any fish, do you? He wants to remind them of what he told them in the upper room. You'll remember there in the context of bearing fruit, John 15, 5, he said, apart from me, You can do nothing. And the Greek text, the word for nothing means nothing. You can do nothing, okay? Now, the real fact is, though, we only trust Christ to the extent that we are aware of our own insufficiency as well as his all-sufficiency. The Apostle Paul was talking about sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel. And he asks a rhetorical question in 2 Corinthians 2.16. He says, and who is adequate for these things? You would think if anyone was adequate, Paul was. And he says, who is adequate for these things? He's saying, I'm not. And then he goes on a few verses later in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and says, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. 
our adequacy is from God. Now, there are two dangers to avoid with this truth. When you feel your own inadequacy, and I'll be honest, I have felt inadequate from day one as a pastor. I feel inadequate still 38 years later. There's never a sermon that I prepare and never a sermon that I deliver where I don't think, what in the world am I doing? I can't do this. And I feel terribly inadequate some weeks to the point of thinking, maybe I should resign. Just go get another job because I can't do this. So I feel overwhelmed with inadequacy. Same thing when I, when I share the gospel with someone. I think, oh my goodness, here I go. And I do not feel competent to do that. Here's the first danger. You'll be paralyzed and do nothing. You just go, I can't do this. And you don't do it. Remember when the Lord called Moses? <laughs> and the book of Hebrews tells us, Moses was trained in all the wisdom and all the skills of the Egyptians. So Moses was a knowledgeable guy. And the Lord says, you know, go deliver my people. And Moses goes, Lord, I can't talk. <laughs> and the Lord says, who made your mouth? Who makes, you know, and the Lord kind of confronts him. Same thing with Gideon there in Judges 6 when the Lord calls Gideon to go deliver Israel and he says, who am I? I'm the least of my family and my family's the least in Israel. I can't do it. That's the first danger is that you, you do it. But you'll notice here that when the Lord asks the question and then tells them to cast the net, he doesn't say to them, stand back. And then suddenly 153 fish jumped into their boat. They had to cast their nets and they had to drag the fish up in the nets and then they had to drag the fish up onto the shore. In other words, the lesson is this. You have to use what the Lord has given you in dependence on him. He gave the command. They obeyed and used it. And the Lord gave them many fish. And so don't let that sense of inadequacy make you freeze up where you don't do anything. If the Lord's going to use you to speak a word to someone about the gospel... He won't use you like a ventriloquist uses a dummy, you know. Okay, now talk, you know. He, he doesn't do that. You have to open your mouth, independence on the Lord, and go, help, Lord, here I go, and talk to the person, and the Lord works through what he's given you. The second danger is you'll go out and get some training and some experience, and then you start trusting in your training and experience. Uh, Peter and the other disciples here could have thought, <clears throat> excuse me, but we're professional fishermen. And we know what we're doing. We've done this many, many times. We know where to cast our nets. Uh, why are you telling us this? And if they had done that, they would have missed this experience that the Lord had for them. Uh, I, I think it's really helpful to get trained, okay? I believe you should be trained in evangelism explosion, how to share your faith. Uh, if God has called you to preach or teach, I think you should get all the training you can in how to do that. I've been doing it for 38 years, and I still read books on how to share my faith, and I read books on, I got one going right now, on how to preach better, because I, I think there's value in that. But don't trust it for one second. Don't trust your training. Trust the Lord. 
And I feel like I've been walking on water to preach now for 38 years every week, just to help Lord, or I'm going under. And so balance the training with trust in the Lord is what I'm saying. The third lesson about being an effective servant here is to serve Christ effectively. You've got to obey his commands. Now, granted, the disciples didn't yet know it was the Lord on the shore, and John doesn't explain why these tired and uh, um, seasoned fishermen would listen to some stranger giving them advice from the shore. But I think he tells the story assuming that we know it's the Lord. He mentions that in verse 4, even though they didn't. And to show that when you obey the Lord, the Lord gives the blessing. Uh, I think that this experience also reminded them of a morning early in Jesus' ministry. They had been fishing all night again, like here. They had caught nothing, just like here. And Jesus was in the boat, and he puts out with them and says, Peter, I want you to put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And on that occasion, Peter protested. It's in Luke 5, 5. He says, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. And then, thankfully, he added, but, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. I'll do as you say, Lord. And when Peter obeyed, the Lord almost sank their boat with the catch of fish that um, he provided. And it was on that occasion in Luke 5.10 that the Lord said to Peter and the others, Don't fear, from now on you'll be catching men. So the Lord used the fishing experience to say, that's just a picture. From now on, I want your focus on catching men. And so this post-resurrection experience with the Lord would have refreshed their minds about, oh yeah, that's why the Lord saved us, not to catch fish, but to catch men. Now there's a difference here, and that first time, the Lord was in the boat with them. And that pictured that he was with them during those three years of his ministry. Now the Lord is on the shore, and they're in the boat out there. And it's a picture of the fact that our Lord is in heaven, and we're on earth. But he's still giving the commands, and as we obey him, he provides the catch. Now think of the excuses again that they could have made on this occasion. Uh, They could have said, are you kidding me? Cast the nets on the right side. I mean, we've been fishing all night. And we've cast on the right, we've cast on the left, we've cast on the stern, we've cast on the bow. You know, we've done it all and got nothing. What's the point? They just could have made up all kinds of excuses. We're professionals. We know our business. That won't work. You know, all on and on it goes. It, and yet, if they had made up excuses they wouldn't have experienced this miraculous catch that the Lord wanted to bless them with. And if you make up excuses rather than obey, you'll never see the Lord work in your life. J.C. Ryle comments, Our Lord's object here was to show the disciples that the secret of success was to work at his command and to act with implicit obedience to his word. The Lord blesses our obedience not our excuses. Many, many years ago, I was shopping for a winter coat at a mall in Southern California, 
And I bought the coat, and I went out of the store into the hallway of the mall there. And I don't get these impressions very often. I could probably count on the fingers of one hand the number of times in my life that I have been so strongly impressed, and I believe it was from the Lord, and I I just sensed, I want you to go back in that store and tell that salesman about me. Well, as I said, that's a rare occurrence for me. I'm not a guy who, you know, the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that. That doesn't happen with me. And so I just kind of shrugged it off and I started to walk away. But the impression wouldn't go away. I want you to go back in that store and tell that salesman about me. And so then I went and I sat on the bench in the walkway in the mall and I started to pray and I started making up my excuses. You know, Lord, this is going to really be nuts because if I go in there, he's going to think I'm a religious weirdo and he's not going to listen. And besides, he's with another customer already and this is just awkward and I'm not gifted in this way. And, you know, you start making up all the excuses. And I couldn't shake the command. And I thought, if I walk away without going back in that store and talking to that guy, I'm just going to be flat out disobeying the Lord. So I prayed and I went back in the store and the salesman kind of looked at me strangely. And I said, when when you're through with those people, I just need to talk to you for a second. And he came over and he thought something must be wrong with the coat he sold me. And I said, no, no, the coat's just fine. But I said, listen, I'm a Christian and and I follow Jesus. And I just had a, a strong sense that he wanted me to come in here and talk to you about him. And the guy's mouth fell open and his eyes got big. And he said, you know, I I made a decision to follow Christ a few months ago, but I've fallen away. And I talked to him for a few minutes and he said, I'm going to get right with the Lord and I'm going to go back to church and so on. And the Lord used my clumsy obedience in that way. And Whenever that happens, by the way, don't take credit yourself. Here, when they catch the fish, notice that John, in verse 7, says to Peter, it's the Lord. We didn't catch these fish ourselves, Peter. It's the Lord. He did it. And all they did was did what the Lord said. And so, to serve Christ effectively, first of all, you've got to have your trust in Him as Lord and Savior. Secondly, you will immediately sense your own inadequacy and at the same time, his adequacy or sufficiency. And then thirdly, you just have to obey. Obey. Fourthly, to serve Christ effectively, be eager for fellowship with Christ. It was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who recognized instantly, it's the Lord But in typical impetuous fashion, it's Peter who jumps in the water. I don't know why he put his coat on. I would think he'd take it off to jump in the water. But maybe he just wanted to feel decent and modest around the Lord. I don't know. But he jumps in, goes the hundred yards to shore and gets there first. And then the other disciples follow in the boat. It's remarkable that Peter did that in light of his recent failure. Have you ever failed the Lord badly? And then you you just don't want to be around the Lord. Don't want to be around the Lord's people. 
Now, maybe he's forgiven you. In this case, the Lord met with Peter on resurrection day. Tells us that in Luke and in 1 Corinthians 15. That he met with Peter privately. And I think they got the relationship squared away. But sometimes even when you've confessed your sin to the Lord and he forgives you, you want to kind of, you feel awkward. Maybe you think, oh, I need to feel guilty longer. You know, I need to do penance. And and so you're kind of flagellating yourself, you know, before you're ready to, no, that's not grace. That's legalism. And let me say, legalistic Christians make terrible servants for Christ. Because nobody wants to follow a legalist. Nobody wants to follow somebody with a cloud of guilt over them. Wouldn't you like to come follow Jesus? He'll make you feel guilty like I do. No. No. It's people who have experienced his grace, who can minister grace to others, and grace is what sinners need. They need to know the good news that God forgives our sins freely through Christ. I think also Peter's eagerness to be with the Lord is significant in light of his present companions he's with because he has made this boast before them on the night Jesus was betrayed. Hey, all these yokels might deny you, but not old Peter. You know, I'll never do it. And then he falls flat on his face. And they could have in the boat said, what a hypocrite he is. Look at him jumping in the water to be with the Lord. I mean, come on, quit showing off. And you know what? Peter didn't care what they thought. Peter wanted to be with Jesus. And so he jumps in. And I like that because, frankly, sometimes when you begin to follow the Lord, your family even your Christian family, and your friends are going to go, oh, man, what a show-off. They're just a fanatic. Calm it down, would you? And you know why they do that? Because you convict them. You make them look bad. And I'm going to give you some advice. Graciously, politely ignore them. And if it means getting up early to be with Jesus every day, get up early and savor that time with Jesus every day because you love him and you want to be with him because he's forgiven all your sins. And when Jesus gives the invitation, come and have breakfast, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. It's the best breakfast you can get anywhere in town. Now, John makes kind of a strange comment in verse 12 I want to comment on. He says, none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Uh, Dr. Carson, in his commentary, I thought, gave some good uh, insight here. He said, to understand that, you've got to put yourself back into their shoes. Uh, They had had several proofs that Jesus was risen. We saw that in chapter 20. So nobody dares question him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. They knew it was the Lord, but after Jesus was risen, it was a little different. It was kind of strange because they're behind locked doors and suddenly, poof, there's Jesus. I mean, that's a little weird. You know, the door was locked. How'd he get in here? And on this occasion, the last time we saw him, he was in Jerusalem. How'd he get up here to Galilee? Did he walk up here like we did? 
Uh, and he's got a fire going on the beach, and he's already got a fish on the fire before they add their fish. Where'd he get that fish? Where'd he get the firewood? It was a little weird. And so they're getting used to it. So John is reflecting the uneasiness here. Uh, we, nobody dared to question him. We knew it was the Lord, but at the same time, it was a little bit different. I think that's the flavor of it. When Jesus invites the disciples to come and have breakfast, it reminds me of his invitation to a lukewarm church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. The church of Laodicea was lukewarm. And the Lord warned them, if you don't repent, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. But you know what he also, he gave them a wonderful invitation. He said, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, this is the invitation, the promise, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And that's still his promise. Even if you've been lukewarm, even if you denied the Lord, he says, come and dine with me. Come and dine with me. And so fellowship with the Lord is necessary if you want to serve the Lord. Otherwise, you know what will happen? You'll burn out. The final thing to serve Christ effectively we see is first let him minister to you. Jesus, it says, already had prepared some fish on the charcoal fire. And then he adds the fish that he's just provided for them, some of those fish. And he cooks them and he serves them breakfast. Some commentators, by the way, come up with some fanciful interpretations or allegorizations of why does John say there were 153 fish Let me give you the answer. Because there were 153 fish. Have you ever been around a fisherman who fished, who doesn't tell you how many he caught? John was an eyewitness to this occasion. And he's letting you know, we counted them, guys. There were 153 large fish. That's the point of it. It's significant here that Peter doesn't protest that Jesus wants to serve him breakfast. Because back in chapter 13, when Jesus wants to wash their feet and he comes to Peter, Peter goes, no, Lord, please, not me. Let me wash your feet. And Jesus has to teach him a lesson, doesn't he? Well, here, I think Peter's learned the lesson. And Jesus said, let me serve you breakfast. And Peter says, thank you, Lord, and he partakes. You know, it says in the kingdom that Jesus is going to gird himself and serve us. What an amazing thing. You would think we'd all be before the throne saying, Lord, let us serve you. But no, he's going to serve us. And the point is here. Ministry occurs when you are full of Jesus And you spill over on others. That's what ministry is. You have spent time eating with Jesus. And he's filled your cup to the brim. And you can't carry a cup that's full to the brim without it slopping over. And you get around others and they just go, wow. You know, there was something of Christ that just came from him to me. 
from her to me. That's what ministry is all about. So first, eat with Jesus, let him fill you, and then be around others, and he'll use you to minister. So I come back to my earlier question. Are you being used to impact others spiritually? And if that question convicts you, and it does me, uh, take it to heart. I'm not asking, are you busy serving the Lord? If you are, I'm glad. Maybe in a ministry of helps. But I'm asking you this. Is the Lord using you to share the good news with those who don't know the Savior? Is the Lord using you to minister what you have of Christ to others in the body so that we have discipleship going on person to person and it's a two-way thing I'm not saying it's not but to be effective in serving him first of all you've got to know he's your savior and lord secondly you will feel your inadequacy but then you trust in Christ's sufficiency thirdly you got to obey his commands fourthly you have to be eager to fellowship with him and let him minister to you each morning out of his word And then you'll be used spiritually in the lives of others. Where do you start? Well, if you've got a family, start there. Husbands, ask the Lord that he'll use you to shepherd your family, to minister spiritually to them. Pray for your kids that they'll come to faith in Christ and begin to grow in Christ and that your home would be the fragrance of Christ. And then you've got a neighborhood, begin to pray for your neighbors by name. You at work, there's your mission field. Pray for them, and so on. And when you come to church, don't come saying, I hope I get something out of it today. Come saying, what can I give today as the Lord uses you to minister to his body, the church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace that you called a bunch of fishermen who had the same faults that we have. And you used them to found your worldwide movement, the church. Thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light that we might proclaim your excellencies to those who have no hope in this world. Thank you that you're gracious with us when we fail you, that you restore us, and that you use our very failures even as a means of us ministering to one another. And I pray that this body would know the reality of Christ in every heart and life, ministering Christ one to another. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper as we conclude. And if you're a visitor with us and you know Christ in a saving way, as I've explained, then the scriptures would tell us all